I want you to imagine yourself in a place where you spend a lot of time. It may be uh, in your living room. It may be at your desk at work. It may be on your back porch. Maybe it's your cabin up north or somewhere else. But imagine yourself someplace where you spend quite a bit of your time. Now imagine that as you're sitting there, Jesus walks up to you. You you may be quite shocked to see Jesus in person, but imagine this in your mind. It's just imagination. So imagine that Jesus walks up to you. He looks in the eye and says, come, follow me. Now, when you hear those words, you don't know exactly where that's going to lead. You don't know what's going to happen to the rest of your life. You don't know what Jesus is going to do uh, with the rest of your life. But those words hang in the air of, come, follow me. I think for many of us, our first instinct when we hear those words of, come, follow me, first instinct is to think of the cost. Think of that reality of giving up control of our lives, of, of allowing Jesus to get in the driver's seat of our life and us not being able to do any backseat driving um, on trying to give him input on where we want to go. It's a little bit scary to give up control of our lives. Uh, Right now we're in this, in still the relative beginning of our Not a Fan series where we're talking about growing as followers of Jesus. And a part of the series includes an optional followers journal, which is a daily devotional that asks questions for reflection just to help us go deeper in following Christ. And I've been doing the followers journal in the last week and one of the days there is a, um, an assignment where you have to pray a, a certain prayer ten times. It's just one sentence. And the prayer goes like this. It says, Lord Jesus, come interfere with my life. Lord Jesus, come interfere with my life. And I'll tell you, I, I was sitting in my office here at church. It was in the middle of the day where I was doing that part of the journal. And when I got to that, I hesitated quite a bit. Because when it's put in that way, we realize, wow, do we really want to allow Jesus to interfere with our lives? Because if you're like me, you, you may like to control your own life. You may like to be able to set your schedule for the day and know what's coming up when. And you really don't like distractions or interruptions that come along and take you off of your planned course for your day or even for the rest of your life. And, and so I was sitting there hesitating um, because I knew I wanted to be a follower of Jesus, but I don't necessarily like it when it's put in those terms of, Jesus, come interfere with my life. But then as I began to think about it, I realized, you know what, that's what it really means to follow Christ. That we give Jesus the freedom to do whatever he wants in our lives. That, that, that if he wants to change our day in some way by bringing in some interruption or something that we weren't expecting, if he wants to even change the entire course of our life, he has that freedom. That's the freedom that we give him when you surrender control of our lives to him. So that cost of following Christ is one of the first things that comes to many people's mind when they think of those words, come follow me. But there's something else I think that comes into a lot of people's minds. And it's a feeling of insecurity or inadequacy when you think of the reality of following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I think of the Apostle Paul when he was a fisherman and met Jesus for the first time. Uh, Jesus um, came to him. He, his eyes were suddenly opened after Jesus did a great miracle to who Jesus was, that he was the God of the universe in human form. And Peter, when he realized this, he got down on his knees and said, Lord, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. When we really grasp the reality that Jesus knows everything that's possible to know, including our faults, our sins, our shortcomings, the baggage that we carry around from the past, it can be very daunting, very intimidating to think about, ask the question, are we really worthy even to be around him? I mean, it, I get nervous sometimes when I'm around um, 
someone who is a, is a um, significant figure in the local community, or um, if you've ever been around someone famous or someone you've admired from a distance uh, for a while, but suddenly you're in their personal presence, that can be kind of intimidating. Or say when the CEO or, of your company or your boss comes in, that can be a little bit intimidating to be in their presence. But how much more so to be in the presence of Jesus Christ? That can be a very intimidating thing. It can really expose our sense of um, inadequacy or, or our insecurities, especially as we recognize that, you know what, we aren't perfect. Does Jesus really want to be around us? It's a second issue that may come to mind that I want to focus on today. I mean, Jesus says to all of us, come, follow me. Uh, we recognize there's definitely a cost. We're talking about that cost throughout the series. But today I want to focus in on that feeling of inadequacy or, or insecurity or, or just that feeling of, do I really stack up? Does Jesus really want me to be around him if he recognizes everything that's in my past or all the struggles I currently have? We're looking at that topic today. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, there are Bibles in the pew or the chair in front of you. Uh, today we're continuing our series called Not a Fan. Not a Fan is this idea that we don't merely want to be fans of Jesus, um, but we want to be fully committed followers of Christ who make him the number one priority in our lives. And throughout the series, we're focusing in on a couple of verses in Luke 9, but also going to some other passages of Scripture that help illustrate um, what Luke 9 communicates to us about following Christ. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dig in uh, to who Jesus really wants to follow him. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we open your word today and see uh, the things that you taught, the things that you call us to do, as we see what you did back in your ministry 2,000 years ago, I ask that you will be our teacher and that you will open our eyes to what it really means to follow Christ. God, even as we recognize our own sins, our own struggles in life, and we can feel uh, humble, uh, insecure, even embarrassed at times when we look at these things, we pray that you will open our eyes to your grace and your love for us, even in the midst of those things. So please guide us, Lord. Help us to grow as followers of you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read just a couple verses out of Luke 9, uh, specifically verses 23 through 25. This is where Jesus very clearly lays out the, the expectations that he has if we were to be his followers. It says, Then Jesus said to them all, all the people gathered around him, he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? So Jesus here just pretty much lays it out that he is not looking for f fans, but instead he's looking for followers. He's looking for people who will fully commit themselves to following him. Now, here he clearly defines what a follower is. He says that a follower is someone who will deny themselves, meaning they, they prioritize Jesus' wants and desires above their own. So they deny their, themselves. They take up their cross daily, which is a metaphorical way of saying that we need to surrender everything to God. Uh, let him be in the driver's seat of our lives. So we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, we're talking about not being fans of Jesus. A fan of Jesus may be someone who knows a lot about Jesus. Maybe they've been involved in church and a bunch of other Christian activities through the years. Uh, they, they, can, they may have Jesus bumper stickers. They may have Jesus t-shirts. 
Uh, they may be able to quote verses that Jesus said. But at the end of the day, they're, they're mainly enthusiastic admirers of Jesus. They like being associated with him, but they aren't a big fan of, of following Jesus wholeheartedly. Uh, they say, you know what? I'd like to follow Jesus, but... And then they insert something after that but. They say, but I don't want him to really interfere with my money. I don't want him to tell me how I need to uh, schedule my time. I don't want to forgive that person who's really hurt me. I mean, fans of Jesus like being associated with Jesus. They like a lot of the benefits, um, like that hope of heaven. They like being associated with the church and with uh, Christian people. But they don't necessarily like the commitment of fully following him in everything they do. It's not that fans don't want a relationship with Jesus. They want a relationship with Jesus, though, on their terms. But Jesus is looking for followers, not for fans. Now, he says here in verse 23, if anyone would come after me. What he's saying here is that anyone is welcome to follow Christ. In saying this, Jesus is really quite remarkable when you put him in the cultural context of 2,000 years ago. Uh, People in this culture... Um, viewed Jesus as a rabbi. A rabbi is simply a Jewish teacher. And, and we see a number of times in the biographies of Jesus in Scripture where Jesus is called rabbi. And he doesn't seem to mind that title. It simply means he's a Jewish teacher. But Jesus was not like other rabbis of his time. Now, Jesus did gather disciples around him, but he was not the first uh, teacher, the first leader to gather disciples around him. That was quite commonplace. It was very common for rabbis in Jesus' day to gather a select group of disciples around them to follow that, that rabbi wherever they went. It wasn't even specifically a religious thing. Philosophers did the same thing. People like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle also had groups of disciples who would follow them around wherever they went. But to be a disciple of a rabbi in that culture was, it was a very high honor because not, not just everyone could be a disciple of a rabbi. Uh, disciples of rabbis, in order to become a disciple, had to go through a very, uh, very in- intense and rigorous quizzing or testing time where, where the rabbi would quiz the prospective uh, disciples uh, with questions like, okay, quote to me the book of Exodus all the way through from beginning to end. That, in our culture, that may seem crazy. But in order to even qualify to be a disciple of a rabbi, you had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You had to memorize those. <laughs> they have better attention spans than we oftentimes do. They were, the, the, uh, rabbis would have other questions like, okay, in this section of Leviticus, tell me how many times the name of the Lord occurs. I mean, it was a very intense and rigorous testing process to become a disciple of a rabbi. And, and, and many people didn't make the cut. They wanted to be disciples of rabbis, but they couldn't because they couldn't live up to the expectations. And it was really in the rabbi's best interest to set very high expectations because the quality of the disciples reflects a lot on the quality of the rabbi. You see, if, if the rabbi allowed just any disciple in there, um, I mean, people who weren't uh, very bright, people who didn't really know uh, their Bible very well, he would reflect poorly on the rabbi. On the other hand, if, if the rabbi had some really brilliant disciples following him, I mean, that would make him feel pretty good and, and re- would reflect well on him and the rest of society. And so it's in the rabbi's best interest, typically, to be very selective to have the best of the best disciples following him. But then here comes Jesus, and he says, if anyone would come after me. 
What he does here is just throw the doors wide open and basically say, you know what? There aren't any prerequisites for following me. There aren't any prerequisites uh, which are requirements that you have to meet in order to be my disciple. At least on the front end, there aren't any requirements. I mean, think about what a prerequisite is. I know that term mainly from college, where if you want to enroll in an upper-level course like Calculus 2 or Calculus 3, you first have to have the courses that come before that, like Calculus 1. I mean, that's a pre- Calculus 1 is a prerequisite to get into the higher courses. Or there are even prerequisites in other parts of life. Think about going to a football game or a basketball game. One of the prerequisites, the requirements of getting in there, is that you have a ticket. There are even prerequisites in our jobs. I mean, think, why do you think that um, potential employers ask for a resume and for references? It's because they have certain expectations in terms of your education level and your experience. They want to make sure you have the right character. Those things are prerequisites in order to get most jobs. And typically, the, the, greater, the more impressive or significant the opportunity is, the higher the requirements are. Think, for instance, if you want to get into Harvard University. I mean, one of the best schools in the country. Um, there are some pretty high standards for, to get into Harvard. Not all of us could make the cut. Probably not many of us could. Now, on their website, though, they have a statement that, that makes it sound, at least on the surface, like anyone could get in. On their website, let me read one of the statements that's on their website. You'll probably recognize the statement that's all over. The, I mean, this type of statement is in um, most companies have one of those. It says, Harvard University does not discriminate against any person on the basis of race, color, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, age, national or ethic, ethnic origin, political beliefs, marital status, veteran status, or handicap, and admission to, ex- access to, treatment in, or employment in its programs and activities. Now, this was a massively long list of things that Harvard University does not discriminate in. Now, you would think, okay, it sounds like they're pretty open to inviting a wide variety of people in there. We all know that the standards are a little bit more rigorous than that. Harvard University doesn't invite just anyone to come. On an average year, somewhere between twenty-five and 30,000 students apply for admission into Harvard University. Only 7% are actually accepted to be students at Harvard, though. Only 7%. I mean, it's very selective. It's a, it's a tremendous opportunity for great education, but it's very, very selective. There are, there are prerequisites that people have to meet. But Jesus is saying, you know, just come as you are. Anyone is welcome. There aren't prerequisites that you have to meet. You don't have to be up to some sort of s- certain spiritual level. You don't have to have some record of church attendance. You don't have to give away a certain amount of your money in order to come. Follow me, is what Jesus is saying. Now you may be wondering, is this really true? Does Jesus really welcome just anyone to come follow him? You may be thinking about your own life, um, baggage that you're carrying from the past. And, and from interactions with people, I know a lot of us are carrying things that, um, that we'd be very embarrassed if it was exposed publicly. Or, or we're just very sad that, that happened in the past, and we think, you know what, God must be really sad as well. Do I really have what it takes to be a follower of Jesus? Does he really want to associate with me? Well, when we look in Scripture, we see that Jesus really does live out this reality that he wants anyone who will come to follow him. I invite you to turn back in your Bibles a few pages to Luke chapter 5. In Luke 5, we meet a man named Levi who illustrates the fact that Jesus invites anyone who, who's willing to come follow him. Anyone's welcome. 
in Luke 5, verses 27 and 28, we see uh, Jesus doing some stuff, and then it says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, on the surface, this may look like just a standard everyday occurrence. Jesus comes along, says, follow me. Someone gets up, follows him. But what this really shows is that if you have baggage in your past, that's not a problem for Jesus. He invites anyone who's willing to come follow him. Levi is a person who has a lot of baggage. He doesn't go into a lot of details here. But let me explain how we know that Levi has some degree of baggage that would turn most religious leaders off um, of, of Levi being one of their followers. Levi was a Jewish person. We know that from his name. In, in that culture, the name of a person had a lot of significance. Uh, you have, um, when, a, when a parent gives a child a name, they want that child to live up to the meaning of that name. And the name Levi was one of the, the most significant, highest level names that you could possibly give a child. Because when you look back in the Old Testament, Levi and his descendants, called Levites, were people who were sold out to serving God. Many of them served as priests, served in the temple. They were wholeheartedly devoted to God. And so when Levi's parents named him Levi, there was evidently some expectation in there that he would serve God, that he would give his life to God. There was even a distinct possibility that Levi's father, maybe even his grandfather, could have been priests. But somewhere along the line, something happened to Levi. Rather than serving God, he ended up serving himself, and he became a tax collector. Tax collectors in that culture were hated even more than they are in today's culture. Um, I mean, we don't like taxes. But then, I mean, there was no such thing as an honest tax collector in that culture. Tax collectors, especially who were Jewish, were especially despised because they were seen as traitors against their people because the tax collectors were seen as siding with the Roman Empire, um, taking money from people and giving it to the enemy, which in their mind was the Roman Empire. And tax collectors weren't honest at that point. They, w- they could extort as much money as they wanted from the people who were paying the taxes, and they would line their own pockets with the extra money. They were oftentimes very greedy. And they, w- they were religiously ostracized from society. Uh, even t- tax collectors who had a Jewish heritage weren't allowed anywhere in the temple. Uh, any other Jew was, but not tax collectors. There was a good chance that Levi was even ostracized or estranged from the rest of his family. And the religious leaders of the day definitely would not have been a fan of Levi. Odds are good that at various times Levi saw religious leaders passing by on the street. And they, he may have seen them passing by on the opposite side. He may have heard some snide or nasty comments coming uh, his way from them. Tax collectors were not popular. He would be at the very bottom rung of society. They would be at the end of any traditional rabbi's list of someone to follow him. And look at what Jesus does. Jesus comes along, comes up to Levi, says, Levi, come follow me. What this shows is that Jesus is, is sincere when he says, anyone who wants to can come follow me. And what we have to recognize is that if anyone can come follow him, that means that everyone is able to come. There are no exclusions on people who don't qualify to follow Jesus. I mean, you, you see TV, TV commercials that make some great offer, um, like some great deal on a car, or, or get this thing free if you spend X amount of dollars. Oftentimes there are some exclusions that apply. You have to have a certain level of credit, or you have to buy a certain amount of um, merchandise in order to qualify for that free thing you get at the store. 
There are some exclusions that apply to a lot of great offers. But with Jesus, there aren't any exclusions for who qualifies to follow Christ. If you look at what happens next in this passage, we see that lived out. Um, in verse 29, it says that Levi, he was so excited that he held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the other religious leaders of the day did not at all like what Jesus was doing. I mean, they, you can imagine they were probably standing back with their arms folded, whispering to each other, man, you see what he's doing? He's supposed to be some great man of God, and he doesn't even know that he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. I mean, all these people that Levi has around him, they're his friends, but it shows where he is in his lifestyle, that, that his friends are the other outcasts of society, the other tax collectors, probably some prostitutes, other people who society looks at as sinners. But here's Jesus right in the midst of them. And we see throughout his ministry that Jesus has no problem relating with people that society says aren't worthy of relating to. I mean, Jesus enjoys being with people who recognize that their lives are broken. These people, I mean, Levi probably definitely would have recognized, you know what, my life has problems. But that's fertile soil for becoming a follower of Christ. Because in order to become a follower of Christ, we have to recognize that we can't do it on our own, but we need Christ. So that, that brings up a question. I'm going to call it a follower question. How freely do you admit your weaknesses and sins? You see, fans of Jesus like to try to cover up their weaknesses and sins. Fans of Jesus like to put on that, that spiritual uh, veneer. Um, I mean, they come to church in the morning when they um, get out of their car. It's kind of like they go through this magic tunnel where whatever problems they were having earlier in the morning with the kids or, or with other stress, I mean, they leave that behind. They come in, put a smile on. It's so easy to do that. Fans of Jesus easily put up that front, though, and try to pretend like they have it all together. But true followers of Jesus have no problem admitting, you know what? I don't have it all together. I struggle in this area. I struggle with control. I struggle with anger. I struggle with lust. I struggle with materialism. I mean, followers of Jesus freely admit that they have challenges and problems. It's the fans of Jesus who like to cover up all the problems and say, you know what, everything's fine. So a follower question is, how freely do you admit your weaknesses and sins? Jesus has no problem if we have problems in our lives. But if we try to cover them up, it's going to be really, really hard to truly be a follower. And that brings us to the third um, aspect that we see in this idea of everyone is welcome to follow Christ. That if there are no qualifications to follow Christ, there are then no excuses for not following Christ. I mean, I think we humans are very easy, are, are great at making excuses for things. Um, there's a website out there called The Mother of All Excuses. Um, if you're ever looking for an excuse for something, I recommend this website. Um, this website has over 1,300 excuses for work. If you're late, if you need a day off, go there and it'll give you 1,300 options you can choose from. There are over 700 excuses for, um, for, if you, for school. If you are late to a class, if you forgot your homework, 
700 excuses. There are, ex- there are excuses for getting out of jury duty. There are excuses for um, why you're not doing very well on your diet. Excuses for why you um, are late on your taxes or why you cheated on your taxes. Now, I'm not a fan of making excuses. I'm just saying there are a lot of excuses out there. Uh, let me give you four of my favorite ones. One of them is, I can't make it to work today because there is a bowling ball stuck under my car. I mean, maybe true. I mean, I could see maybe if it got lodged under there in a certain way, it would make it hard for you to drive your car. But anyway, that's one you can use if you need to sometime, I suppose. Uh, here's another one. I was actually out in the parking lot the last two hours. A rabid dog wouldn't let me out of my car. I mean, all these excuses are possible, but at the same time, they're still excuses. Two hours is a long time to claim to have sat in the car uh, while some dog was sitting outside waiting to attack you. Maybe, but who knows. Another one is, uh, this is for school. I'm sorry, but my babysitter flushed my homework down the toilet. I mean, it's a, it's a variation of the dog ate the, um, the homework. Possible. Here's the last one. I mean, <laughs> it's actually quite clever, but I don't recommend using it for you who are students. I was late for class because the bell rang before I got here. I mean, very true. <laughs> I mean, that's completely true because the bell rang before you got there. But I don't recommend using that because the teacher is probably not going to be very fond of your smart aleck response. Now, notice that in practically every excuse we can ever make, we're trying to get, get the guilt off of ourselves. We're trying to shift it somewhere else. And, and here is the bowling ball. It was that dog. It was our babysitter. It was the bell. I mean, we easily, when, when making excuses, want to point elsewhere. But Jesus has taken away every single barrier that can stand between us and following him. And he said, you know what? There are no, ex- no, no pre-qualifications. There, there are no prerequisites. Anyone who wants to, everyone who wants to, can come follow me. So the question for us, another follower question is, what excuses do you use for not following Christ? One of the things I've realized through the first week of this Not a Fan series is that we all have some degree of fan in us. Uh, some of us more than others, but we all have those parts of us that bristle against following Christ. But what excuses do you use to follow Christ? Or not to follow Christ? I mean, there are many that come up, but I think it's important that we identify what those excuses are. Call and say, identify them for what they are. I'd say, you know what? It's just me making an excuse. Anyone who wants to can follow Christ. So we have a responsibility to, to really step out in faith and do so. Another excuse, though, that oftentimes comes up is, is an excuse, we make excuses for trying to exclude others from following Christ. But really, Jesus removes any excuse for barriers that we put up in other people's way. I mean, it, it can be very tempting for people in the church um, to be judgmental, to say, you know what, we want people who look like us, who act like us, but anyone who doesn't fit in our predetermined um, uh, agenda or our plan or our ideal for what a person should look like in their lifestyle and their political preferences and the way they dress and the music they like, if they don't fit into those preferences, there's a natural tendency to want to push them out and not welcome them in. And it's sad when that happens even for someone who is really, really just seeking out Christ for the first time. But Jesus is saying, you know what, if anyone is welcome, those who profess to be followers of Christ need to make sure that we aren't putting up barriers that keep others away from him. There's, there's a cute story that I'm going to read for you. I read it about a year ago here, but I think it's very appropriate in a time like this. And 
um, just a good reminder of not putting up barriers. It's about an old cowboy. It says, One Sunday morning, an old cowboy entered the church just before his services were to begin. Although the old man and his clothes were spotlessly clean, he wore jeans, a denim shirt, and boots that were worn and ragged. In his hand, he carried a worn-out old hat and an equally worn dog-eared Bible. The church he entered was in a very upscale and exclusive part of the city. It was the largest and most beautiful church the old cowboy had ever seen. The people of the congregation were all dressed in expensive clothes and fine jewelry. As the cowboy took a seat, the others moved away from him. No one greeted, spoke to, or welcomed him. They were all appalled by his appearance and did not attempt to hide it. As the old cowboy is leaving the church, the preacher approached him and asked the cowboy to do him a favor. Before you come back in here again, have a talk with God and ask him what he thinks would be appropriate attire for worship in the church. The old cowboy assured the preacher he would. The next Sunday, he showed up for the services wearing the same ragged jeans, shirt, boots, and hat. Once again, he was completely shunned and ignored. The preacher approached the cowboy and said, I thought I asked you to speak to God before you came back to our church. I did, replied the old cowboy. And what was his reply, asked the preacher. Well, sir, God told me that he didn't have a clue what I should wear. He said he'd never been in this church. I mean, that's a bit of an indictment, having a church where God says that he's never been there. I mean, it's a completely fictional story. But what it does, it identifies what fans oftentimes do. Because fans of Jesus, I mean, they like being associated with him, but oftentimes they set up boundaries where they try to keep out others who don't fit in their criteria. And oftentimes those boundaries are very superficial. Things like the types of clothes they wear, maybe how they smell, maybe the type of people they hang out with, the type of music uh, they listen to. Or they judge their lifestyle and think, oh man, their lifestyle makes me really uncomfortable. Their lifestyle is not biblical, it's not godly, so we need to push them away. But look at what Jesus did. Jesus welcomed them in. And that leads to the third follower question that we're looking at this morning. How do you respond to people who aren't like you? Now we're not saying that we need to adopt the lifestyles or even condone the lifestyles of people who are living in an ungodly way. But at the same time, if we are to live like Christ and live as his followers, we shouldn't push them away. Instead, invite them to Christ. Invite them to Christ because Jesus can take care of whatever baggage they're carrying. That's not our role to try to judge them and to say, you, need to, you definitely need to change this the way it is before you come to Christ. Jesus welcomes anyone and everyone the way they are to come to him. And then he'll, he'll take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. So we're saying that anyone and everyone is, is, has an equal opportunity to follow Christ. He doesn't have any prerequisites. He doesn't look at your baggage in your past or, or your service in church and say, well, you make the cut, you don't. He welcomes everyone to come and be his follower. But he is very clear that one of the expectations is that anyone can come, but it costs everything. He's asking for everything. He's asking for complete surrender. Remember, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. I mean, look at what Levi did. And Jesus said to him, follow me. He says that Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. I mean, Levi had probably been in this lifestyle. He'd probably been a tax collector for I mean, at least a few years, if not even, not even a few decades. 
And at this moment, he left everything that he had and followed Christ. Will Jesus ask us to do the same in terms of literally leaving um, our home, our job, stuff like that? We don't know. That's part of the adventure of following Christ. But if we trust him, we will see that he really has our best interests in mind and the life that he offers is much better than what we could devise on our own. But he does ask for everything. We need to ask ourselves, is it worth giving everything to Christ? Um, a number of years ago when I was in high school and college, I had this dream of owning my own car company. I, I thought, you only live life once. Let's try to build cars for a living from, from scratch. Take them from the drawing board to the street. It was my dream. I thought, again, you live life once. Let's try to give that dream a shot. So in late high school, early college, I got acquainted with a guy down in Texas who was trying to start his own car company. There are a few people out there who try to do that. Got acquainted with this guy. We were exchanging emails. And, and I was just asking for some advice from him. He said something to me that at the day kind of caught my attention, but since then it's really turned me off to that pursuit. He said, you know what? If you want any chance of being su successful in starting your own car company, it has to be your life. When your friends are watching football on Sunday afternoons, you have to be in your garage working on your car. When, when, when you're tempted to want to spend more time with your family during the week, on the evenings, you need to spend time in your garage working on your car. That's the only chance you have of being successful. It's cutthroat out there. You can't do it unless you give it everything you have. And at first, I, I just took that and thought, okay, that's what I'm going to have to do. But then as the years passed, I realized, you know what? That's not worth the cost. It may be kind of cool to have my own car. I wouldn't name it after myself. My last name is Lemons. That was, that was the first thing he said in his response to my first email. I do not recommend naming your car after yourself. I agree. But I realized that's not worth the cost. But we have to figure out in our own lives, is following Jesus worth the cost? It will cost us everything. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Anyone's welcome. It will cost you everything. But the cool thing is that following Christ gives us true life. Remember, Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. John 10.10, 10 Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. My prayer is that we will be people who recognize that there are no barriers between us and following Christ. He welcomes us to all come as we are. We don't have to clean up our lives beforehand. But as we come to him, he's looking for us to trust him with everything, that he will be our leader and our guide in everything that we do. My prayer is that we will grow as those followers of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will be at work in our lives, helping us to recognize that you don't have prerequisites for who follows you, but you do expect that once we come to you, that we're going to give you everything we have, that we're going to trust you. And God, it comes down to that trust. And we confess it's so much easier to trust in ourselves, to want to control our own lives, to do things our way. Um, but Lord, your way is better. I know I've seen that in my life, and I know many of us have, many of the rest of us here have as well. And I pray that you will help us to trust you so that we may surrender it all to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You stood